Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. if so-and-so does this or such-and-such does that, everything's going to be just fine. What is it for you? I want you to actually take a second and think about that and write it down. You don't have to share it, but just write down something that you're thinking about that you hinge your hope on, that you, that you put your hope in each day. For a lot of us, as we think about some of the things that we put our hope in, we kind of wonder, is that really worthwhile? Looking back on some of the things that we've put our hopes in in the past, we wonder, is this really where we should set our hopes? Each generation has someone or something that they tend to put their hope in, a new technology, a scientific breakthrough, a discovery, a political leader, a social movement, even sometimes preachers are elevated to such heights. But each generation comes and goes, and while the leaders and discoveries may alter the world around them in some way, the hopes that we hinged on such individuals and objects and ideas inevitably fell flat. It happened in a big way with one of the political leaders we just um, ended with, uh, Barack Hussein Obama. Back in 2009, everybody in our culture seemed to hinge their hopes on Obama. Preachers of all kinds that I remember from the time said he would be great, that he would do away with racism, that he would end poverty, that he would usher in world peace. Artists, rappers, musicians, politicians, community organizers, professors, teachers, scientists all rallied behind the man that they believed would be the deliverer. So sure were so many who placed their unwavering hope in him that he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in October of 2009, just 262 days after entering office. Obama had literally accomplished nothing to deserve such a prize, especially when you consider the fact that the deadline for nominations for the prize was on February 1st of 2009, meaning he had been nominated for the prize during the first 12 days of his presidency. That's a whole lot of hope placed on one man. And as he continued to fail the country and all of the special interest groups his approval rate plummeted so low that even by the most liberal sources, he had a 47% or less of the country's approval by the end of his presidency. He failed to be the chosen one, the savior that so many thought he would be, but Obama's not alone in this. So many leaders and technologies and discoveries fall short. In September of 2014, Apple CEO Tim Cook announced to the world the upcoming launch of the Apple Watch. The avid Apple followers, um, they, they term, that I kind of somewhat affectionately term the cult of Apple. 
heralded the upcoming smartwatch as revolutionary, something that would change the world. Like the iPod changed the music industry. It'd be something useful that in a few years, everybody would have one on their wrists and it would be the equivalent of everybody carrying around a cell, a cell phone. But by all metrics, the hope of the smartwatch world fell flat. How many people you know walking around with an Apple Watch? A few, but not everybody. Not many. In fact, the Apple Watch did so poorly on its first run that they've already moved on to Apple Watch 2. Apple Watch 2 is already in production. They've abandoned their first model because it did not do what they had hoped for it to do. So many of our hopes are hinged on such silly things. A watch is not going to change our lives. A political leader may very well change our lives, but he's certainly not going to help everybody. So many things we put our hope in. So many things fall flat. It's nothing new. This is not something new for our generation. In fact, one of the early reformers in the 1500s, John Calvin, said that a man's nature was to be one of false hopes, of putting our hope and our faith and our trust in things that didn't deserve it. In fact, he described our heart as human beings as an idol-making factory. And it's so very true. Just look at ancient Israel. Anybody remember the stories from, from Samuel, from 1 Samuel? Uh, in that book, it's really interesting. There's a story told about Israel's history. And Israel was still young as a nation in this story. And they made a very foolish decision. When they looked around them, Israel saw that every nation around them had a king. And they believed that they too needed an earthly king. A human king would solve everything. And they hinged all their hopes for the future upon a man yet to be crowned. And while the people foolishly put their hopes in an earthly king, one man spoke the very words of God to them, warning them that having an earthly king would not solve their problems. He would not be a source of hope and light and truth. Samuel warned the people over and over and over again what a king would mean. The king is going to tax you. He's going to oppress you. He's going to take advantage of you. He's a man. You have a heavenly king. Don't do it. And Samuel tried over and over and over again to tell the people, a human king isn't the answer. But the people wouldn't listen to his warnings. They turned a deaf ear to the words of God coming through the prophet of God. And so Samuel, in speaking to God, can you believe what the people want, Lord? Surely you're not going to give them a king. God said they want a king. Give them a king. God granted their request. God allowed Israel to have a human king, and it took practically no time at all for them to regret it. Within one king's lifetime, they regretted it. Notice that while the whole nation placed their hope in a human king to solve all their problems, Samuel didn't. Samuel knew, like all the true prophets of old did, that the only one in whom there is hope 
is God himself. That the only one who can bring about positive and real and lasting change is God. In fact, this is one indicator that sets the true prophets apart from the false ones. Who do they place their hope in? For many in the Old Testament, the only one to put hope in was God. Because it was being revealed to them that God had a plan. That all of the things, both good and bad, that were taking place, God was working them good or bad, around to accomplish his will. That there was something bigger in play. There was something taking place that they couldn't see. God was going to do something unlike anything else in history that had ever been seen and would ever be seen in the future. God was working a plan for salvation that would save many from every tribe and tongue and nation. If you have a Bible... Open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're on verse 10 and 12 today, or 10 through 12 today. Peter's speaking about salvation and hope. We've just talked about hope and how Peter says, we do have hope. As Christians, we should live in hope. He says, concerning this hope, this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter tells us that the prophets of old prophesied about things that they didn't fully understand or realize, and that wouldn't, in some cases, come to pass for hundreds and hundreds of years. They searched and inquired. They diligently pondered their own writings and the scriptures that had come before them, the visions that they received, trying to find out who and when and where and what and how God was working to accomplish this great masterpiece of a plan. They knew something was coming. They could feel it in their bones and it was revealed to them that God was doing something powerful by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in this text is referred to as the Spirit of Christ, a unique title, but one that reveals the close relationship between the persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit revealed to the prophets of old, someone is coming, Messiah, Savior. The prophets desired greatly to know when, where, how. And little bits and pieces would be given in prophecy. But they didn't get to see the full picture. Not yet. One of the prophecies that stands out in my mind as I think about the prophets of the Old Testament is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. And I know that's a lengthy passage, but I want to read it to you because I think it is one of the most important Old Testament passages because it is a very clear prophecy about the identity of the Messiah. And it's actually really interesting. 
in many places, in many of the Jewish temples that are in, in many of the, the, um, the various um, uh, Jewish churches around, they do not read this passage of the Old Testament because it is very, very specific prophecy about who the Messiah will be and how he will come. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12 says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance uh, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off uh, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. All about Jesus. It's so very interesting. That passage has been used many, many times to win the hearts of the Jewish people. Because what sacrifice could Isaiah be talking about? The servant of God who comes to make payment for sin. 
What sacrifice could, they, could Isaiah be talking about besides Jesus, the Christ? One who is perfect and holy and righteous. One who is the very living hope of the people. What thing could Isaiah be talking about but crucifixion? Where though Christ was lifted up on a cross and crucified, he was exalted. The prophets heard God's words and they saw visions from him, yet they didn't fully understand. They saw little bits of the picture. And it's so very amazing to me that even with these little bits and pieces of the picture, they still believed, they still hoped, they hinged their hopes, every hope upon God and what he was about to do. That's a special kind of hope. A faith that looks forward without clearly seeing. And Peter says, how blessed are you that you have now seen with your own eyes and heard with your own ears the fullness of the message of hope. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that Peter's directing his writing to, they don't feel very blessed many days. They don't feel very blessed many days. We've talked about their cultural situation. That Christians are hated in the first century. Not like Christians are hated in our culture. But I mean really, really hated. The Jews hate them and are hunting them. The Romans are starting to oppress them. Claudius is sending the Jews and the Christians because he thinks they're exactly the same thing. Just different sects of the same religion. He sends them all out of Rome. Says, I don't want to deal with it. Be gone. Christians were forced out of their homes. Later on, they were forced to close their businesses if they would not hail Caesar as Lord. They didn't feel very blessed. They didn't feel very hopeful many days getting out of bed, if they had one. Peter writes, says, take hope because you have seen and heard the fullness of what the prophets could only envision and imagine. You have seen and heard truths that are so deep and so powerful and so life-altering that angels themselves still long to look into them. Isn't that an interesting phrase that Peter gives? The angels long to look into these things. Even these heavenly beings that God has created that are so very different and other than we are, they're still pondering and wondering and trying to look into these things and comprehend and understand the greatness and goodness and power of our God through whom we have hope. Peter says, I know you're hurting and I know you're experiencing some bad stuff. I know that some days you just don't want to get out of bed. I know that some days you wonder where your meals are going to come from and where you're going to rest your head. I know, I get it. But take hope. Because our God is greater. He is powerful and mighty and he has overcome the grave. And our hope is in him. 
he will not forsake us. That is good news, my friends. Our God is so wonderful, so deeply mysterious in many ways, so great and profound. Angels long to look into the truths that come from him. Men throughout history have written countless volumes exploring the truths of God. Our Sunday and Wednesday night study right now, we're focusing on the nature and being of God, talking about what does Scripture share with us about who this God is, about what His nature is like, about what He has revealed of His being. And what He's revealed is totally unique, unlike anything in the universe around us. There is no one like our God. The prophets say it over and over and over again. Sometimes they even ask it as a rhetorical question. Who is like our God? No one. There are so many statements throughout scripture about how unique our God is. There is no one like him. And our hope is in him. Not in some new technology or a new discovery or a new politician or a new civil leader, but in the eternal, unchanging, unwaveringly good God who loves us enough to die on our behalf. And that's the gospel. And that's what's so unique about the gospel. It's so unlike anything that has ever been or will ever be. Because what our God does is utterly, completely, totally unique in world history. Our holy, righteous, just, merciful, loving God comes into flesh. He incarnates so that he can die, making payment for sin and giving us hope. Not just of forgiveness and life here and now, but of eternal life that's yet to come. And what a beautiful mystery it is. We can't fully comprehend what happens on the cross, but we know that we have hope through it. We believe in the power of God and what it accomplishes there. We believe that God accomplishes exactly what he intends to do. He does not fail. Through that work on the cross, many are brought salvation. My friends, that is where your hope should rest. Don't trust any politician to be your savior. Don't think that a technology is going to make your lives perfect. Don't get me wrong. People can accomplish some good things. And technology can certainly make our lives more convenient in certain ways. But eventually they fail. They fall short. They come up short of the goal. But our God never fails. Our God never fails. Our God never fails. He always accomplishes what he sets out to do. And that is where our hope rests. That is where our hope lies. And today, I tell you the truth, that if you want hope, 
There's hope in Jesus. There is hope in Jesus. And you can have it today. We're going to have a time of invitation this morning. And this time of invitation is for a response because truth always demands a response. You can believe it or you can reject it. So many in our world reject it. Don't reject it. Don't suppress the truth. Embrace it. And take great hope and joy in it. I love what John Piper talks about. He talks about the end of man. The purpose. Our reason for being. Is to take great joy in God and to give him glory. What a better, what better way to do that? Is there to, than to make that statement of faith? I believe. I believe he is good and I believe that he's accomplished what he set out to do. I believe him at his word that he could save. I believe that he is Lord and God. That he is my king. Today, if you need to respond to the gospel, this time of invitation is for you to say the words that so many of us have said. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he is my Savior. If you're ready to do that, we will baptize you, and you will receive from God all his gifts that he has to give, not least of which is real, true hope. If you're ready to do that this morning, won't you come forward as we stand and sing together? Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.